On July 20, 1944, a group of Nazis arrived at the Wolf's Lair for a meeting with Hitler. One of the officers was a one-eyed, three-fingered man named Klaus von Stauffenberg. He arrived with his aide, Werner von Heften. Both were led by their guide, Ernst John von Freyend. The Wolf's Lair was Hitler's heavily fortified compound, located deep in the forests of Prussia. The men were meeting in the strongest structure on the base, a concrete bunker with walls 26 feet thick. Before entering the building, Stauffenberg asked his guide if there was a place he could change clothes. The men were led to a bedroom in another building. But once the door shut behind them, Stauffenberg and von Heften leapt into action. They began removing a bomb from their respective briefcases. Von Heften armed his while Stauffenberg changed his shirt. By the time he was dressed, von Heften was preparing the second. Then, a knock on the door. Their guide urged them to hurry. Hitler and the other officials were waiting to start the meeting. Stauffenberg and von Heften repacked their briefcases, then strutted with confidence back towards the bunker. They sat in the front of the room, as close to Hitler as possible. A few minutes in, Stauffenberg and von Heften excused themselves for a phone call. But there was no phone call. Instead, the two made a swift exit towards their vehicle. That's when they heard the muffled explosion. The bombs had gone off. Smoke poured out from the bunker. Alarms rang. Soldiers raced to find out what had happened. In the confusion, Stauffenberg and von Heften drove off undetected. Hitler was dead. Now, the next phase of the coup could begin. Or at least that's what would have happened had the July 20th plot to kill Hitler actually succeeded. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode of Four on Failed Conspiracies, a series where we blow open the oh-shoots and what-ifs of history's biggest blunders. Today, we'll be covering the July 20th plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The operation was planned by high-ranking Nazi officials who wanted to create a new Germany. In this episode, we'll take a look at some of the early attempts on Hitler's life. Then, we'll see how a few Nazi officers plotted to remove the tyrant from power. Finally, since our whole episode is one big conspiracy, we'll end on something a little different— will slip into an alternate world that considers what would have happened had the July 20th plot actually succeeded. 
We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The situation in 1920s Germany was dire. The country had lost World War I, their economy was in tatters. German rule over its global colonies was no longer, and many of their citizens had lost loved ones in the war. These desperate conditions paved the way for a young and hungry political figure named Adolf Hitler. In 1921, he became the leader of a fringe group known as the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party, better known as the Nazis. They wanted to rebuild Germany and make it the superpower it once was, regardless of the cost. On November 8, 1923, Hitler organized a rally of thousands of people outside Munich's largest beer hall. He gave a rousing speech about his plans to save their fatherland. He urged his followers to start a revolution and invade a political rally going on inside the hall. Then, he ordered them to take over political buildings around the city. The crowd was so moved by his message that they followed his instructions immediately. People began marching through the streets of Munich. They tried breaking into various government buildings, but were stopped by the police. Sixteen of Hitler's early followers were killed during the riot. Hitler was later tried for high treason and eventually jailed for the uprising. The event made national headlines, and it was coined the Beer Hall Putsch. It gave Hitler the attention he needed to spread his ideas to a wider audience. And when he was released less than nine months later, he leveraged this new following. 
Maybe he couldn't seize political office, but his followers could certainly vote him in. During Hitler's rise in the 1920s and early 30s, Germany was split into three factions. Left-wing progressives, moderates, and right-wing nationalists. Hitler had control of the far-right constituency. Lower-middle-class Germans liked Hitler because he promised to restore the economy and create better jobs. The wealthy elite also supported him, mainly because Hitler was an enemy to the progressive left's taxation plans. Hitler used the loss of World War I to his advantage. Nationalists were looking for a scapegoat as to why Germany hadn't been successful, and Hitler convinced them that the Jewish people left-wing communists, and other minority groups were the reason for that loss. According to him, their foreign influence had weakened unity on the home front. With his base secure, Hitler campaigned for the German presidency in January 1932, but he lost to an independent candidate named Paul von Hindenburg. Because the Nazi party gained so much traction in the election, Hindenburg was pushed to appoint Hitler as Chancellor of Germany the following year. This put the Nazi leader in the second most powerful position in Germany. Hindenburg hoped that because Hitler was one of only three Nazis in the cabinet, his ideals wouldn't hold that much influence. But Hitler had other plans. In 1933, the German parliament building was lit on fire. Hitler used the event to convince Hindenburg that communists were planning an uprising, which could completely destabilize the already weak country. As a result, Hindenburg passed an emergency decree suspending the freedom of the press, freedom of expression, and the right to hold public gatherings. When Hindenburg died a year later from lung cancer in August 1934, Hitler took advantage of his death and merged the office of the presidency and chancellor, making him the totalitarian leader of Germany. By demonizing the communists, he imprisoned 4,000 political opponents, further cementing his role as a dictator. Even with this tyrannical power, there were a few brave enough to oppose him. One dissenter was a Swiss man named Maurice Bavaud. He was studying to become a Catholic priest. While in college, he grew convinced that Hitler was the devil incarnate. At the time, the Nazis also oppressed the Catholic Church. Hitler loathed Christianity and believed religion made people weak. He shut down Catholic schools and imprisoned priests. Naturally, Bavaud disagreed with this practice. He was also deeply unsettled by the Nazis' penchant for paganism. Their midnight oaths, book burnings, and other rituals evoked a primal, satanic spirituality. Such practices were blasphemous in his faith, and he felt compelled to remove Hitler from power. The 22-year-old Bavode taught himself German and moved to Munich in late October 1938. He spent his days walking the city to find the perfect place to stage his attack. Bavode learned that Hitler would be coming to Munich soon. In just a few days, Hitler was set to commemorate the 15th anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch. The following day, he'd participate in a military parade. 
When the time came, Bavode placed himself on a Munich street corner. Since the parade would need to slow down to go through an archway, that location gave Bavode a little more time to shoot Hitler. Hours passed as more people crowded around Bavode. When Hitler came down the street on foot, Bavode pulled out his gun and tried to take aim. But he never fired. Hitler had too many guards, and the crowd's wild movement blocked his view. Instead, he panicked and abandoned his plan. Disappointed and out of money, Bavode tried to flee to France. While attempting to sneak onto a train, he was caught by the railway police, who then handed him over to the Gestapo. Meanwhile, Bavode maintained that he was only a follower hoping to meet his admired leader. At first, they believed him. He was originally tried for possession of a weapon and for evading his ticket fare. But after sifting through Bavode's luggage, the security forces found a map of Munich, his gun and ammunition. Eventually, he confessed to trying to assassinate Hitler. Bavode was put on trial and sentenced to death. The Nazis kept him on death row for nearly three years before he was killed. But Bavode wasn't the only one plotting Hitler's demise. In 1938, a carpenter named George Elzer was making his own plans. Elzer believed Nazi socialism prevented him from earning a livable wage. If Hitler was gone, he thought the communists could take power and solve many of his problems. On the evening of November 8, 1938, Elzer traveled to Munich. He watched Hitler give his speech at the Beer Hall Putsch celebration, just one night before Bavode's planned attack. But Elzer chose a different weapon. He figured a bomb was the best way to kill Hitler. He had no idea how to build one, but he knew he could learn. Then, at next year's Beer Hall Putsch, he'd kill the tyrant. In early 1939, Elzer started building bombs and testing them in the fields near his home. A couple months before the attack, he returned to Munich to confirm he had the perfect hiding place for his device. Elzer had actually discovered the spot on his first visit to the beer hall. He could hide it in a stone pillar on the stage directly behind where Hitler would stand. But getting a bomb inside that pillar wasn't easy. Every evening, Elzer went to the hall around 9 p.m. He snuck upstairs, hid in a closet, and after the bar closed, he chiseled into the pillar. It was a painstaking process. He had to make sure that every sound he made was silenced, that every piece of debris he dropped was picked up. He worked until the staff arrived at 7.30 a.m., then he snuck out the back door, only to repeat the process that night. This hard work seemingly paid off. Elzer placed the bomb inside the pillar on November 2nd and set a timer for November 8th at 9.20 p.m. If all went as planned, the bomb would go off right in the middle of Hitler's speech. However, on the day of, Hitler arrived an hour early. He raved on stage about Germany's superiority and left at 9.07 p.m. By that point, most of the crowd had poured into the streets. So when the bomb detonated at 9.20, 
The only people killed were the beer hall's staff. Elzer was long gone by that time. He'd fled to the Swiss border where two German guards stopped him. They asked him some routine questions and didn't suspect much. Until they saw the contents of Elzer's pockets. He had a fuse, bomb schematics, and a postcard from the beer hall. Like Bavode, the guards handed him over to the Gestapo. When news of the bombing made its rounds that night, Elzer became the prime suspect, despite his insistence that he was innocent. On November 13th, an interrogator asked to see his knees. Elzer's legs were badly swollen and bruised from his nights of chiseling. They gave him away. Elzer was placed in a cell, tortured, and eventually killed six years later. After escaping two assassination attempts, Adolf Hitler believed he'd been spared for a reason. The truth was, he'd merely dodged two half-baked attempts at his life by chance. And his luck would continue to be tested. By the early 1940s, many officers were conspiring to kill the Nazi leader. They disagreed with his policies and questioned his military decisions. Their most famous attempt would go down in history, and it would be known as the July 20th Plot. Coming up, the startling revelations that led to Hitler's betrayal. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. 
By 1941, Germany had attacked France and the Soviet Union. Hitler's merciless bodyguards, the Schutzstaffel, or the SS, rounded up and killed thousands of Jewish people. Word of these atrocities spread throughout the ranks of the German military. Many of the soldiers supported it. Those who didn't turned a blind eye out of fear. An officer named Colonel Henning von Tresco was one of the few men who decided to take action. He was a Nazi stationed in the then-Soviet Union. He worked in military intelligence and read numerous reports about the SS massacres. After learning about these war crimes, Tresco knew Hitler needed to be assassinated. Tresco tried to find support, but mostly stood alone until 1943. That year, Germany experienced a major defeat in the war. They'd tried to capture a Soviet city called Stalingrad, but its soldiers were too strong. The Nazis had no hope of winning. And yet, Hitler refused to retreat. The city was important. Stalingrad produced thousands of weapons and tanks, which would go to the Nazis if they won. Because of Hitler's stubbornness, over 250,000 Nazi soldiers died. After this failed attack, many officers felt Hitler had led them to ruin and would continue to do so. This discord gave Tresco the perfect opportunity to recruit more members for his conspiracy. He enlisted friends, trusted colleagues, and soldiers sympathetic to his cause. Their headquarters was a military area called the Bendler Block in Berlin. Obviously, not everyone who worked there was part of Tresco's conspiracy, so the resistance met secretly. In March 1943, the group had their first real shot at killing Hitler. The dictator was coming to a military base in Smolensk, a city in the Soviet Union, for a meeting. Tresco quickly built four bombs and placed them in a package of liquor. His plan was to hand it to an unsuspecting officer in Hitler's group who would take it back on his plane. But on the morning of March 13th, Tresco discovered a problem. Hitler's team had arrived in two identical airplanes. Tresco had to make absolutely sure the bomb made it aboard the right one. After Hitler's press conference, Tresco walked onto the tarmac with Hitler's party and handed the liquor to a man named Colonel Brandt. He asked Brandt if he could deliver the liquor to a friend stationed at Hitler's next stop. Brandt happily agreed. Once Hitler took off, Tresco returned to his office and waited by the phone for several hours, smoking and anticipating the news of Hitler's death. But when the phone rang, he didn't receive the news he wanted. The bomb hadn't gone off. Hitler had landed safely. The following day, one of Tresco's co-conspirators took a train to pick up the bomb. When he arrived at Brandt's office, he saw the package hadn't been opened. The officer explained it was the wrong gift and took it away. Back in the rail car, he learned the bomb never detonated because of a faulty fuse. The operation might have been a failure, but it proved that Hitler was vulnerable. The conspirators could get a bomb next to him easily. It was only a matter of time before another opportunity presented itself. And that chance came in the form of a man. 
Count Klaus von Stauffenberg had fought for the Germans during the invasion of Poland. Months prior to the failed bombing, Stauffenberg had tried to mobilize his peers against Hitler. When word got out, he'd been reassigned to a post in North Africa as punishment. But distance didn't put an end to his hatred. He still wanted to see the tyrannical leader assassinated, and he'd happily do it himself. On April 7, 1943, Stauffenberg led a retreat to the Tunisian coast. The German trucks were moving slowly through a mountain pass when suddenly U.S. planes ambushed them. The attack ripped through his men and flipped his jeep. Stauffenberg nearly bled out. His wounds were severe. Surgeons had to amputate Stauffenberg's right hand, remove his left eye, and two fingers on his left hand. This was the last straw for Stauffenberg. On top of Hitler's crimes, his vengeful reassignment had almost gotten him killed. Stauffenberg found a new purpose. He was going to assassinate Hitler. Upon his return to Berlin, Stauffenberg connected with Tresco. Those seeking an end to Hitler's rule worked diligently in the dark of night to remaster a plan to oust and kill the country's genocidal leader. Most of these rebels just wanted to save Germany from another devastation like World War I, and many in the ranks felt it was only a matter of time before the U.S. and British invaded mainland Europe. The conspirators planned to kill Hitler and install a new government. A few of the rebels were politicians ready to take office. Once they were in charge, they'd negotiate a treaty with the Allied forces. They hoped that the U.S. and Britain would see Hitler's assassination as an act of good faith. Maybe they could show Germany mercy once they surrendered. Stauffenberg was appointed to serve as chief of staff to a man named General Friedrich Fromm, the head of Germany's reserve army. The reserve army's role was to reinforce the Nazis on the front lines. It consisted of roughly 2.5 million soldiers. Some had been drafted, others volunteered. Their units were scattered throughout the country, but many were stationed in Berlin. The reserve army was also in charge of protecting Germany from civil war. If the SS ever tried to revolt, Hitler could activate a plan known as Operation Valkyrie. This would call in the reserve army to put down the rebellion. Aside from Hitler, Fromm was the only other person who could give it the green light. Which, Stauffenberg realized, was the perfect way to take control of Germany. Once Hitler was dead, they could get Fromm to activate Operation Valkyrie. In Stauffenberg's imagining of how the plot would play out, Fromm would lie to the reserve army, telling them that Hitler's SS guards had killed him. Fromm would then command the reserve army to arrest the SS soldiers. Because these were direct orders, they'd have no choice but to obey. Stauffenberg expected all of this to happen within hours of Hitler's death. Afterward, the new government would negotiate their surrender with the Allied forces. If everything went according to plan, the war would be over days after the coup. It was a brilliant scheme if Stauffenberg and his team could get Fromm on their side. Approaching him was a huge gamble. Fromm wasn't fanatically devoted to Hitler, 
but he was a loyal soldier. If he didn't like what they had to say, he could have them arrested, even killed for treason. After hearing their plan, Fromm was ambivalent. He didn't call the military police, but he wasn't on board with the coup either. The plan had to go on without him. Instead, Albrecht, a senior German official and co-conspirator, would forge Fromm's signature and deploy the reserve army on his own. On June 7th, Fromm met with Hitler and brought Stauffenberg along with him. Over time, Hitler began to trust Stauffenberg, and he started attending these meetings on his own. Now that he had direct access to the target, Stauffenberg seemed like the best person to carry out the assassination. The conspirators got to work hatching the perfect plan. They figured the best place to kill Hitler would be at the Wolf's Lair, a heavily fortified compound hidden in the forests of Prussia. Here, Hitler met with his generals in a concrete bunker. It also happened to be the perfect place to plant a bomb. The thick walls would keep the force of the blast inside the room, increasing its lethality. While this plan gained steam, some of Stauffenberg's conspirators felt he couldn't pull it off. The bombs needed to be assembled. With only three fingers, they doubted his ability. But with Allied forces closing in on all sides, time was of the essence. If the rebels wanted to save Germany from total annihilation, they needed Hitler gone. And Stauffenberg was their only hope. Coming up, unexpected setbacks blindside the conspirators. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. By 1944, numerous German officers were questioning Adolf Hitler. Not just his morality, but his leadership ability. After causing them several disastrous defeats, a group of conspirators hatched a plan to assassinate the Nazi dictator. On July 11th, Hitler summoned Fromm and Stauffenberg to a meeting at a base called the Berghof, a mansion hours away from the wolf's lair. It wasn't their ideal location, but Stauffenberg felt ready. He hid the bomb in his briefcase, but before he could arm it, another conspirator stopped him. The plotters back in Berlin also wanted to kill Heinrich Himmler, the leader of the SS. Since he wasn't going to be at the meeting, they asked Stauffenberg to stand down for now. Stauffenberg got another chance just four days later on July 15th. 
This time, the meeting was at the Wolf's Lair. But the meetings with Hitler were short. It wasn't enough time for Stauffenberg to excuse himself, prepare the bomb, place it next to Hitler, and leave again. But when Hitler scheduled another meeting on July 20th, Stauffenberg knew it would be longer. He arrived at the Wolf's Lair, this time with his co-conspirator and personal aide, Werner von Heften, alongside him. Upon arriving, Stauffenberg immediately stumbled on a problem. The meeting wasn't going to be held in the usual bunker. The temperature was too hot for Hitler, so he moved it to an above-ground cabin. The conference room they switched to had numerous windows and a heavy oak table. Even the walls were made out of wood. While the concrete bunker would have amplified the force of the blast, this cabin would not. The shrapnel would still blow outward, and the bombs would be lethal, but not as lethal. Still, Stauffenberg proceeded as planned. Minutes before the meeting, he asked his guide, Ernst John von Freyand, if there was a place he could change his shirt, which meant it was time to arm the bombs. He took them to a bedroom in a nearby cabin. Once Stauffenberg and von Heften were inside, they got to work. In the middle of setting up, von Freyen knocked on the door. He requested that they hurry, prompting them to only arm one bomb instead of two. When Stauffenberg reached the conference room, he whispered his apologies for the delay. Then, citing hearing loss from his wounds in North Africa, he said he needed to be seated as close to Hitler as possible. One of Stauffenberg's colleagues naively gave up his seat. Stauffenberg placed the bomb underneath the table, only three feet away from Hitler. He waited a few moments, then excused himself, saying he needed to make a phone call. Von Heften followed. Luckily, their departures didn't raise much suspicion. People were coming and going to fetch documents, maps, and other materials constantly at the compound. Once Stauffenberg left, the colleague who gave up his seat returned to his former position. And in the process, he bumped Stauffenberg's briefcase, moving it closer to the table's heavy wooden support beam. But at 12.42, the bomb still ripped through the conference room. The blast hurled bodies and chairs everywhere. No one outside the room thought it was serious. Guards practiced firing their weapons all the time at the wolf's lair. Loud noises were commonplace. Which is how Stauffenberg left the base unscathed and flew back to Berlin. He felt confident that Hitler was dead. Now he just needed to initiate Operation Valkyrie. Except for one massive problem. Hitler wasn't dead. After Stauffenberg escaped, Hitler and most of the other officials picked themselves back up. The windows had been blown out, burned paper littered the room, and the ceiling had caved in. Ten were seriously injured and three died from the damage. But Hitler only suffered from a few minor cuts and burns, splinters in his leg and a bruised arm. He'd been leaning over the oak table when the bomb went off, which may have shielded him from the blast. When Stauffenberg arrived back at the Bendler block, he discovered that the reserve army hadn't been mobilized. There were rumors Hitler wasn't actually dead. 
But Stauffenberg was adamant. No one in that room would have survived. With that assurance, Ulbricht forged Fromm's signature and launched Operation Valkyrie. He told the Reserve Army that the SS had staged a coup and killed Hitler. They needed to arrest all SS officers and other high-ranking Nazi officials immediately. Fromm was at the Bendler block that day. Knowing that Fromm might try to dismantle their attempt to overthrow the regime, Ulbricht and his men detained Fromm, locking him in his office. One part of the reserve army was led by Major Otto Raymer. After Operation Valkyrie was launched, he was told to arrest the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. As soon as Raymer arrived, he handed him the phone. It was Hitler on the other end. He ordered Raymer to disregard Operation Valkyrie and capture the traitors at the Bendler block. Raymer obeyed. He released Goebbels and the rest of the Reserve Army's prisoners. By the evening of July 20th, Stauffenberg and the other conspirators were under arrest. Fromm created an impromptu military court, charging the conspirators with high treason that very same night. Fromm worried that if he let them live, the SS would certainly say he conspired with their plot. So Fromm marched Stauffenberg, Ulbricht, and a few other conspirators to the courtyard. By 1 a.m., the Bendler Blocks Plaza was illuminated with the headlights of Reserve Army vehicles. One by one, the men were shot. But Hitler was far from satisfied. In the following months, 2,000 people were publicly tried, shamed, and found guilty in connection with the plot. Some were shot, others were hung. Even Fromm wasn't safe. He was executed for failing to reveal his knowledge of the July 20th plot later in March 1945. Seven weeks later, the Soviets attacked the city of Berlin, leading Hitler to hide inside his own bunker. There, he committed suicide on April 30th, 1945. Germany officially surrendered on May 7th. Historians continue to debate what would have happened if the conspirators had succeeded. If Hitler was killed, it still would have been difficult for them to take power. Some believe Germany would have likely fallen into civil war instead. Not to mention, Hitler and his cabinet already had a succession plan in place. Hermann Göring, a commander in the German Navy, would become the Nazi leader. The military would fight for him not Stauffenberg. But the conspirators hoped for a better scenario. After killing Hitler and creating a new government, they thought their negotiation with Allied forces might cancel some of the reparations from World War I. They even hoped to keep control of Poland. If the July 20th plot succeeded, it would have done more than just cancel a debt. It could have altered the entire course of human history. After World War II ended, Germany was divided by Allied forces. Russia controlled the eastern half, and the U.S., Britain, and France controlled the west. This split, in which the superpowers battled to spread their respective ideologies in Europe, pitting democracy versus communism, essentially started the Cold War. However, if Stauffenberg's conspirators had implemented a new government, things could have been different. 
Stauffenberg and his men were wary of communist Russia. As a result, Germany could have sided with the U.S. and other Allied forces in Europe when tensions started to rise. Meaning, if pressure continued to diffuse, the Cold War may have never happened. Or at least not on the scale that we experienced. It's possible that neither country would have built their atomic arsenals. The threat of total annihilation might have ceased to exist. If there was no Cold War, it's possible the diplomatic landscape of the coming decades could have changed dramatically. America might not have entered Vietnam, or even been the first nation to send a man to the moon. In reality, after World War II, the U.S. military launched Operation Paperclip. Dozens of Nazi scientists, from biochemists to physicists, were brought to the U.S. to help the War Department build better missiles and biological weapons, even the rockets that put Neil Armstrong in space. But if the July 20th plot had succeeded, it's possible those scientists may have stayed in Europe. Instead, Germany could have been the first to put boots on the moon. Most of this is speculation, but one thing is certain. With Hitler dead, World War II could have ended 10 months earlier. One documentary estimated that these critical months could have saved 10 million lives. And there's no telling what positive events could have instead filled that time, from genius inventions to social progress. Even though Hitler survived the July 20th plot, the dream for a better Germany was eventually realized. Today, the country has a tradition of swearing in new military recruits on July 20th. Before, the military pledged fealty to Hitler, now, they swear loyalty to the people of Germany. The conspirators might have died as disgraced traitors, but to millions of people today, they maintain a legacy of taking action against wrongdoing. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time for a new episode. For more information on this topic, we found Killing Hitler, written by Roger Morehouse, helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, 
Join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.